This is an ABC podcast. It's 1984 and Lisa Cohen has just landed her dream job. Right after college, I moved from Detroit to New York to go work for magazines. And I thought, how cool is this? She's a 20-something-year-old in bustling New York City. Midtown, Madison Avenue, so sort of central, not far from Grand Central Station. The people, the noise, and yes, the vibe. I wanted to work for a magazine, and Vanity Fair just looked like the place to be. And if you've seen The Devil Wears Prada, it was like that. Exactly like that. But that was the building I was in. But even though she thought she was exactly where she wanted to be, something didn't feel right. Except the day-to-day wasn't quite as exciting as that all sounds. Ah, yes, the collision of expectations and reality. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, when your dream job becomes a nightmare, or just not what you'd imagined. Now let's return to Lisa Cohen. I am an associate professor of organisational behaviour at McGill University in Montreal. Back in the 80s, Lisa's job at Vanity Fair was not as glamorous as it seemed. And so I would be assigned to an article, sometimes articles by pretty famous writers, and I would be given the job, the responsibility to take that article apart and make sure that everything that was said in it was true and that I had a source to confirm that everything was true. And I would have to call back sources and re-interview them to, to confirm things. And I had to dig into a lot of excruciating detail, so make sure every single name was spelled correctly. Every city was in the state that they said it was in and and all of those kinds of, of details. How did that feel for you as a job? Um, sometimes it was fun. Sometimes it was interesting. I got to get to know it, the material really deeply. But, you know, checking the spelling of Nova Scotia's only interesting one or two times. (laughs) And the other thing that happened is the writers didn't love me because I was asking them to prove themselves over and over again. And who was I? I was this, you know, 22-year-old from Michigan, and they were these famous writers, and I was telling them, you're wrong. You're wrong. I don't believe you. And that's not a fun situation to be in. And so where did you end up when feeling and thinking about this job? I quickly figured out that I probably wanted to get out of it. And, you know, my goal was probably to to write for magazines or be an editor for a magazine, although I wasn't that talented as, as a magazine writer. So I was a little delusional at the time. I stuck it out for about five years. I worked for Vanity Fair for two years, and then I worked freelance for a bunch of different Uh, magazines for three years. And at that point, I figured out that I might actually want to earn enough money to live on and decided (laughs) to go to business school. Of course. 
Now, you and a fellow researcher have given this gap, this phenomenon, a name. What have you called it? We call it glossy work. And what exactly is glossy work? Yeah, I mean, we take it from we're looking at glossy magazines, but what it really refers to is a situation where the sort of patina of the work on the surface, it looks like this really glamorous, great thing, but the reality, the day-to-day is is somewhat different. You're doing sort of boring, repetitive tasks. Um, it's It's a lot of drudgery. In fact, checking at a cool magazine is one example of glossy work. What are some other examples? I think any kind of cultural industry. So if you think about film, if you have a job as a production assistant, that's going to be glossy work. If you work at a, a museum as a curator's assistant, that's going to be glossy work. But even beyond that, every single job has elements of glossy work. I am a professor now, and you would think I would spend my life doing big thinking and and important (laughs) things. But the reality is I spend some of my time doing things like coding data or collecting data, which isn't all that fun. So I think you see it everywhere. And I have MBA students who go off to big important jobs in finance and consulting, but their day-to-day reality isn't as exciting as what they might expect. And even those sexy startups? <laughs> Especially those sexy startups where I actually do a lot of, of studies and, and I find that most people who think they want to go to work for startups and who actually do end up leaving relatively quickly to get a job where, again, they make money and they have some stability and have some possibilities for career development. Speaking of career development, the lure of the promotion and to become a manager was, for Martin Priest, a glossy job. Hello, my name is Martin Priest and I'm the Director of Building Environs Recruitment. I'm quite competitive as an individual, but like many people, when I was sort of going through the process of the more junior, intermediate level recruitment requirements or the role, I probably had one eye on management and becoming a manager at some point in the future, knowing that I liked managing people from from like history, playing sport and coaching sport, maybe my ego was speaking a bit and I felt like there'd be a bit more gravitas or kudos that comes with being a manager, but it was probably a lot more of a full-on and intense role than I was probably expecting. In my career, or I suppose in most people's careers, you, you're led to believe that you should be thinking about progression. What is the next opportunity for me? I mean, everybody talks about annual reviews and getting more money and getting that opportunity for promotion. And it's always been something that I guess subconsciously has been a driver in my daily work on wanting to be seen as a leader or or wanting to have the credibility that comes with a more senior role. Success is perhaps measured upon your perceived progression in your role. And I suppose I bought into that. And to a degree, I still buy into it. I'm not saying becoming more senior or getting more proficient or mastering your skill set is a bad thing. It's definitely not. The drive and ambition to be in more senior roles and take on more responsibilities with a little bit of ego behind it on, I, I want to be seen to be successful. But Martin realised that even though he looked successful from the outside, it didn't always feel like that. But he couldn't reveal his true feelings to many people. Yeah, when I think back to 
having you know made that progression from let's say a, a senior recruiter into a management role or a state management position i quite enjoyed telling you know friends family there, there was a, a certain pride that came with saying that I've, I've achieved that job title and that role but when it came to explaining the rigors of the role and the stresses and strains i would probably keep that to myself or speak to those like my partner I'd explain to her how I felt about the job and things like that. You kind of, I guess you reveal the warts and all truths about the role to your near, you know, your very nearest and dearest. But when it came to sort of speaking to colleagues, peers within the industry, clients, candidates, you put on the facade to outline, you know, your, you know, the pride that you have in that role and, and the respect that hopefully that you, you glean from having that, um, which hopefully is earned as well. But it's the the sense of, of of an internal pride that comes with that of thinking to a degree they think I've achieved and I've become quite successful in my role, whether it's warranted or not. But there's a, there's a sense of pride and enthusiasm that that comes with that. But yeah, the people that you really reveal the truth to, uh, and you highlight why it's, um, or or the areas that stress you out or you don't like or the problems or the headaches that I found I would keep kind of to myself or, or those very very close to me. Martin hadn't heard of the term glossy work before talking to us for this episode, but he says glossy work is something he does see in the building industry. It just struck a chord with me and you know, I've experienced it. Most of the candidates I speak to, they are attracted to glossy jobs. I speak to people that have going into an industry and they are attracted to a specific industry. So I, they want to work for a big builder. They're attracted by the opportunity to build large, beautifully facade, glass facade buildings. They take that's what they want to be building. So they're attracted by the glossiness of the buildings or the projects that they could deliver. So yeah, when I saw the term glossy jobs, I was like, yep, that is a very accurate description of a lot of people's, my own included, drives and ambitions to to move into something that's glossy, bigger or better. A big part of glossy work is the gap between what it looks like from the outside and what it's really like on the inside and how people treat you. Lisa Cohen again. Someone said, people will treat you like you're royalty because you work for a magazine we call Elite. Um, (laughs) They don't care what you actually do. They treat you like royalty. And I think that was pretty consistent across the people in the job. And where it got really interesting is examining how those fact-checkers described or presented their work to others. What happened there? So what we saw is they had different ways of presenting what they did to different groups of people. We looked at what they said to writers that they worked with, and and there they couldn't lie about what they did, but they worked really hard to establish that they had other kinds of expertise and, and authority. They described their work to me, I, who was a semi-insider, because I really knew what the job was. And for me, they really poured it all out and explained the details about what was good and what was not so good, especially the what was not so good part. And then they talked about how they described their work to complete outsiders. So what would you say to somebody 
about your job at a cocktail party. And when they did that, they they never included the bad stuff. It was always, I work for Elite Magazine and <laughs> not even giving the job title. And as you know, everyone to a degree will shape the story about their work in an effort to make yourself feel better and also to look better in the eyes of others. So what was the difficulty or incongruence here for those fact checkers? I think it was the living in a world where people thought you're doing something that's really cool and knowing that you weren't doing something that was all that cool. <laughs> What's the implication of that? I think there there are big implications for the people employing fact checkers and for the fact checkers themselves. For for them, it's, um, you know, people did not stay a long time in the job. Two years, you were an old timer. People left and sought other jobs. They often left the industry altogether. Sometimes they would stay in the industry and, and move up, but there weren't a lot of opportunities for fact checkers. You know, when you, you're the person who tells the writer they're wrong all the time, nobody really wants to give you a promotion. So that was the implication for them, the sort of sense of this is a dead end for me, for the organization. So if you have that kind of turnover, if you're losing people all the time, it means you are replacing people all the time. And there are expenses that that come with constantly replacing people. You need to train them. You need to get them up to speed. You need to figure out if you can rely on them to to do a good job in in their work. So those are the big implications. Absolutely felt like my dream job had become a nightmare and it felt like the industry was not a place where I was going to be happy long term. That's Emily. She's a vet in Western Australia. So I decided that I wanted to be a vet at the end of year 12. Um, I'd grown up around animals. I was super lucky um, living in a rural town where we had horses, we had chickens, we had rabbits, guinea pigs, everything. And I just loved animals. Um, my family or my parents were in the medical field, so I always had a bit of an interest in that regard. But I thought that um, I probably wouldn't be able to deal with people all day, every day. Um, so I thought that being a vet was the job for me. Uh, surprise, surprise, actually being a vet is dealing with people all day. When Emily started out, she was working in some clinics that she called toxic and it shook her resolve in what she thought was her calling. Yeah, so the issue with the clinic that I struggled in um, was partially workload. So we were seeing 15-minute consults back to back to back from 8.30 in the morning until 7 o'clock at night, which was really difficult. But we were also dealing with walk-ins. The policy was to never turn anybody away. Um, and we very rarely got a lunch break that wasn't interrupted by an urgent case. It just felt like the standard of care that you could provide in that kind of environment was quite low. But I held on because I thought the head vet was coming back and she was going to mentor me. And she sat me down one day for a bit of a talk and I thought, oh, this is it. Great. I'm going to get mentored. This is fantastic. 
And she said to me, Emily, I don't think you seem like you're very happy at work. And I thought, yes, this is it. She's going to help. And she said, would you mind not talking about it? Because you're kind of bringing down the morale. And it was just so soul crushing because I just, yeah, I was at kind of on the verge of feeling like, oh, yeah, the industry is not for me. And that just kind of rammed that point home. Lisa Cohen believes one trap that leads to glossy work is the focus on passion. Okay, I have to say, I hate that word. I absolutely hate that word. I think it's one of the most dangerous words when it it comes to jobs and looking for jobs all the time. You want somebody who is passionate. You want a fact checker who's passionate about the work, but that passion can turn on you when that passion isn't fulfilled. That passion can push you to be doing a job that you're not actually happy about because you have this idea about passion. I did about 200 interviews of of people in startups to talk about employment in startups. And so many of the entrepreneurs said, we want passion. We are looking for passion. And I asked them what that meant and how they would determine if somebody had passion. They had absolutely no idea, Um, no idea why they wanted it or what they really meant. But it sure did sound good to them. I think what they actually meant is they wanted somebody who would work like a dog for them. What would you replace passion with in terms of something we might seek? Oh, competence, expertise, <laughs> skills, um, integrity. I don't know. Just Those are just a few that I think you people should think about. Maybe we call it something else, but an element of passion that exists, or maybe it's drive. Maybe it's drive in, in what it is that you do. That's journalist Caroline Winter. When I talk about being passionate about telling stories as a journalist, really what I'm saying is I have a drive, I guess, to tell stories as a journalist. But I can see how passion, you know, if the minute that the halo slips and the passion goes and suddenly the thing that you thought you loved and was the thing that you were meant to be doing and that all roads had led that way, could suddenly could be quite debilitating. Because if, if the job that you've had was your passion, or at least what you called your passion, and suddenly it isn't anymore, where does that leave you? You may have heard her here on ABC Radio, but lately Caroline's been working on a podcast called Sick as a Dog, and it's about the mental health crisis in the vet profession. What I realised was that they're really suffering. They signed up to save animals, not realising that they would end up being the ones needing saving themselves. I did speak to a lot of vets on my travels over the last 12 months and passion was certainly a word that came up a lot. You know, I'm passionate about animals. I love animals, you know, so that was the reason that I went into this career. But I imagine that there would be a handful of them, certainly, that would perhaps have parked passion in place of words like I enjoy you know, the challenge of complex medicine, or I enjoy the result when I make an animal better. So yeah, that's an interesting one. Maybe passion does need to be sidelined or at least diminished somewhat in the conversation. 
And Caroline herself has fallen victim to the dream job becoming a waking nightmare when she left the ABC to work for a podcasting company based in the US. On paper, it looked great. And I thought, well, this is going to stretch me. I'm going to be, t- be telling stories about you know a topic that I love um, to a new audience and all the things that I enjoyed about journalism. And it just didn't land. It's probably about two months in, I, you know, you just have that feeling that sinking feeling that you've just done the wrong thing and you've made this move. And I, um, I I persevered, but at the end of the day, you know, I had to put food on the table. The pay wasn't matching up to the hours that were expected. The expectations of what I was delivering was not up to scratch to what, you know, the boss obviously saw was, you know, the castle that he was building. And at the end of the day, I just had to hands up and walk away. And I hated that because you feel like you failed. I think anyone feels like that when they've gone into any job, dream job or otherwise. I guess the reality is sometimes things just aren't the best fit. And as my dad had always said, what's for you won't go by you. And so I kind of took that as I left and went, you know what, chalk that up to experience. (laughs) And uh, next, please. So what needs to change to avoid glossy work? Yeah, there's this thing in, that we talk about in HR called a realistic job preview. And, <laughs> and what that is, is you tell people realistically what they are going to be doing and let them make a, an informed decision. I think a lot of people would have still taken the job but it would have been a lot easier on them if they had known exactly what they were getting into from the start. And then if managers are helping those who are already in those glossy jobs, what might they do to help them feel better about them? I think giving them a sense of opportunity that there is somewhere you can go from this. So a lot of what the fact checkers did is they found their kind of joy in in doing extra things on the job. So you get to write a headline, you get to interview someone who never was interviewed to start with and maybe add a quotation to, to an article. So finding some opportunities like that. And then for the person who's in the glossy work, What would you recommend to them? How would you recognize it in yourself that you're doing this work that might be incongruent for yourself? Well, if you find yourself basically lying about your job to people, that's that's never a good sign. Um, it's not a sign that things are going well. Um, if you're finding it difficult to get up in the morning and go to the office, that's telling you you're not happy with this. Um, I'd also encourage people to think about getting out of positions when they're not happy about it and dig deep and think about what is it about this job that made you want this job? Why did it appeal to you so much beyond the glamour? What is it that you wanted? Maybe you were just really interested in being a journalist. And so find a way to do the things that you wanted to do as a journalist. And finally, what would be your message about people's expectations about their work and the role it plays in their life, especially when we use the term dream job? 
and passion. I, I think we all need to remember that work is something we do to earn money. Work is sometimes hard work, and we need to be realistic about that. Yes, you can find some things you like in your work, but don't be surprised when it's not the ideal. It's not what you, everything you hoped and dreamed about. Dig deep. Think about what it is you really want to accomplish through your work, whether is it maybe just to get money? Is it to connect with people? Is it to help people somehow figure out what it is that you really do want there rather than clinging to the things that are easy to see on the surface? Thanks to my guests, to sound engineer Kerry Dell and to producer Zoe Ferguson. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Work in Life. This episode was produced on the lands of the Bidjigal people of the Darug Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, work it, baby. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.